Welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alvin, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two will try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Go ahead and give us a call. Our number is 291-6901. And you use the area code 225. You can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. There you go. Sure wish you would. We always enjoy hearing from you and getting your perspective on things. Whatever questions you might have, you give us a call. That's right. And right now is the perfect time to get in to get your questions answered. There you go. We've got the rest of the show to, to take care of that for you. But it always happens. At the end of the show, we got phones lit up that we just can't get to. So to get your questions answered after we go off the air, you mm-hmm. can go to our website, which is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. The, you can take the acronyms Altazan's Garage Company. You can reach us from anywhere, just any computer. <laughs> click on that site. Go to the contact bar. Click that button. If it comes, there's a little form that's going to come up. Just fill it out and send it on in. There you go. And, of course, when you fill that form out, what's really helpful to me, if you want me to be able to give you some meaningful information is to give me the symptoms of the problem. So often people will say, well, my car won't start. Well, uh-huh. that's really not a whole lot of information to try to go on because there's several things that could keep a vehicle yeah, from starting. Literally dozens of things that could cause that problem. It's just too broad. That's not the kind of question I could really help you with. But if you could say, when it rains, my car won't start, and then when it dries out, it does, and I notice there's some water on the left side of the floor, the right side of the floor, or something like that. Right. Maybe give you a little more help with that than, you know, it's just such a broad, broad thing. Right. What you don't want to do is go in and start doing something and mess it all up and then call or write, because the problem is... Once you go in and start tampering with it, you may have introduced any number of factors that there's just no way to account for. Most definitely. You know, once you've done that, it, it, the, the basic manufactured device is going to be a certain way. Certain rules are going to hold. Certain things are going to be Correct. constant with that. But once you go in and start tampering with it, well, all that's changed. And, of course, we have no way to know what you've done wrong. So, Or what you've done, period. Or what you've done, period. Yeah. yeah. We get that a lot where someone will say, I put a timing belt on and now my car won't start. Well, obviously, the first thing to do is go back and retrace all the steps of the timing belt installation. Sure. Because something could have been done wrong. Now, it's also possible you damaged something else while you were doing that. That happens quite left frequently. Left something unplugged, bumped the sensor or whatever. The point is, without seeing the car, it would be impossible for anybody to answer a question like that sure now one question that I get a lot and of course it's kind of after the fact but at least you can keep them from getting any deeper in and it seems like i get this quite a bit anyone who's ever listened to this show knows that we strongly strongly advocate diagnosis before you start messing with something exactly because if you don't know what you're going after and you go in and just do something not only do you not fix the original problem, you may create several other problems. And that's where people, a lot of people get misled. You have a check engine light. The light comes on. It puts out a code. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the trouble tree, it says, replace this sensor. Right. Well, that's the first thing they and go they in and replace the sensor. The end, yeah, and without and verifying any of the other factors. Correct. One of the places where I see they get in even more trouble, particularly this time of year because it is getting hotter and hotter, is the air condition is not cooling as well as they think it should. Right. And, you know, it may have been cooling great last year. Mm-hmm. Of course, it sat all winter. The air conditioning didn't get turned on. The car probably got driven, mm-hmm. but the AC didn't get used. 
now that it's warming up, the AC is going to get start getting used again, and it just doesn't seem as cool as it did last year when we quit using it. Right, and what a lot of folks want to do is go and start adding some more refrigerant to it. Now, if it is low on refrigerant, and if you charge it properly, that may work out. However, sure. that's two huge, huge ifs. Exactly. Because today's systems have so many electrical components that can disable or change the cooling characteristics. Yep. For instance, let's just say a very common problem is one of the condenser cooling fans has gone out. Maybe it sat all winter long. Maybe a rodent got in there and chewed the wire on it. Maybe it just burned up. Maybe it just mm -hmm. seized. Well, what's happening is you're not getting enough airflow across the condenser, so it can't give off its heat. The head pressure is sky high because it's not giving this heat off. It's already on the verge of destroying itself at this point. Now, most systems today are very, very small. They may only hold one pound or even less of refrigerant. Less than 16 ounces of refrigerant. You go in, you dump another 12 ounces on top of that. Now, you've already had an extremely high head pressure because the condenser's not working. You dump another 12 ounces of refrigerant in there. You're now about 75% overcharged. You destroy the compressor. When the compressor comes apart, it plugs the condenser, takes out the expansion valve. I mean, fills the system with metal. Just about total the car by adding refrigerant to it and didn't even come close to fixing the problem. Exactly, because now you still have a coolant fan that's not working. Right. Depending on what type of vehicle, most of them have two. One runs for the engine and the other one runs the air conditioner. Right. And they may see one running and, th and, and think, think, oh, it's, it's working. okay. Even if you see them both turning, doesn't Does mean it? everything's okay because they run at variable speeds. Right. They can run anywhere from sometimes 20% all the way up to 100%. And if they're turning at 20%, yes, they are turning, but they're not turning fast enough to, to cool draw that the condenser down. And you're still going to have a low cooling situation. And a high head pressure. Right. And that's just one of the things. I mean, there's m dozens oh, and dozens yes. more. Let's catch us a phone all call right. or two, and then we'll come back to that. We've got Steve been patient. Hold on. Good morning, Steve. Hey, I got a Silverado problem, 06, mm -hmm. uh, the air conditioner deal where all of a sudden it started blowing hot air out the left side. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Come back after you stop the engine and turn it back on. Yes, sir. I heard y'all talk about that before. Yes, sir. But I forgot in almost it. every case, Steve, that's going to be one of the actuators under the dash. And if it's the left side doing, most likely going to be the left side actuator. I mean, there's a small possibility that the control head can go out and cause that, but that hardly ever happens, and that actuator goes out constantly. So that one, fortunately, it's the one that goes out the most. More fortunately, it's the easiest one to change. Uh, oh, I thought problem, it was the hardest. No, no, it's very easy. Less than an hour for a trained guy. I mean, if you go in and try to do it yourself, you may spend an hour and a half no, I can't fishing around there. But the big thing that I find, there are some aftermarket actuators on the market today. They're absolute Chinese junk, and people will go and put those in. And they still don't work, or they end up burning up the control head. So be sure you get an AC Delco original equipment actuator. They are kind of expensive. I want to say they're around two hundred fifty dollars for the actuator, but at least it fixes the problem. And they are different per per application. Applica yeah. yeah, the right and left I think is the same on that one, but there's a mode door actuator and there's also a recirc actuator, which are different. So you want to be sure you specify the one that you want. You know, the left side temperature right. actuator. And, of course, you bring it to the shop, and, and we're going to get you the right thing anyway. But yeah. that's almost always what that problem is. Okay. All right. I'll be over there. Okay, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. All right. 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we'd love to have you. That brings up right along with the topic we were kind of getting into a little bit, and we see that quite a bit, too, where possibly a research actuator will stick open. Right. Well, Which, what's happening now is you're flooding the intake with hot, moist air from the outside constantly. Right. 
the system just can't keep up with that in South Louisiana. You have to run it on recirculate. I know if you live in Wisconsin somewhere, you could probably run fresh air or recirculate. It's not going to make that much difference. But here where it's maybe 100 degrees plus outside mm-hmm. and close to 100% humidity, there's hardly a system out there that can keep up with that. Right. I mean, if you're driving down the interstate at 70 miles an hour with all the windows closed with one or two people in the car, it you may might keep do, up. Yeah, you might do all right. If you're going around town where the compressor's not turning as fast because you're sitting in stop-and-go traffic, you're not getting the airflow through the condenser, let's say you've got four people in the car, and people don't realize every human being you put in that car is roughly 100 degrees of temperature being emitted. Sure. The way air conditions work is they remove heat. They don't blow cold. They right. remove heat. That's way more heat load. Let's say you've got a if you got a single cab pickup truck. What you're gonna notice, like my little pickup, it stays nice and cool. Oh yeah, it's it's but cool it's a, in a small area. Area is cooling and less people can fit in there. You get a big vehicle like a suburban and put six people in there. Well, you have six 100 degree heat sources sure. emitting heat plus all the cubic feet of air that has to be cooled before you're going to feel it that's why most of them have a rear air conditioning system that works in conjunction with the front air conditioning system because you're trying to cool such a great big area now Mm -hmm. you need more cooling capacity that's right and what will happen is that if you have it on fresh air then it's constantly drawing the hot outside humid air it's having to remove all it so it's working much much harder than it does when it's on recirculate yep on recirculate, it's taking the same air that's already been cooled and already been dehumidified, and it's just cooling and dehumidifying it further. So it's much, much easier on the system. Let's see. We've got Art on the line. Good morning, Art. Good morning. Thanks yeah. for taking my call. You I bet. got a Ram 2016 Ram with the Cummins diesel, and my question is about the oil gain service mileage. The interval? Uh, uh-huh. And yeah, my dealer set me up on a 5,000-mile changeout, but everywhere I read in my manual, it says 7,500. Well, I'm going to tell you, Art, I think it's kind of irresponsible for somebody to make a recommendation based on miles alone without knowing how you drive the vehicle. You see, if your average trip is short, in other words, you get in the car and you go to the grocery store, or you get in the car and you go to work and it's five miles away, or your wife gets in and goes to beauty shop or the church or whatever— If you're making a lot of small, short trips, then your oil change interval is going to be greatly, greatly, greatly shortened. Now, if you're getting in the vehicle and you're driving from Baton Rouge to Atlanta and back every day because whatever reason, you can go much, much, much longer. So it's use that's going to determine the oil change interval and not any set mileage. So how do you normally drive the vehicle? What's your average trip? The working back to work is about... 60 miles. And 60. Then, and then there's a lot of short trips like you talk about. hmm I think 5,000 is probably a good reasonable change on that because the 75 is based on ideal use. And there's what they, ca- they call normal use, which to most people is ideal use. That's where it's all long trips. When you're operating in a hot, moist, ambient temperature like we have here in South Louisiana and you're making short trips, what happens Every time you start the engine, the engine block heats. When it cools, moisture is going to condense in the crankcase. Well, the oil has a dispersant in it that's going to pick that moisture up, which is what it's supposed to do. But the thing is, it can only hold so much. When enough gets in there, it starts to attack the metal in the system. And the only two ways to get that out is, number one, a very long trip where you get the oil up to 200 
30, 240 degrees, the moisture starts to boil, it turns to steam, it rises up, and the PC system sucks it out. But that takes hours to occur. So, again, if you're going from here to Atlanta and back several times a week, that's going to happen. The oil's going to clean itself. It's going to last much, much longer. Now, if you're not doing that, what happens is that liquid starts to build up. It starts forming acids and sludge and all that. That's going right straight through your oil filter because it's a liquid, same as the oil. So the oil filter is not going to take it out. The only other way to get it out is with a drain and fill. Okay. So you, you'll never, ever, ever spend enough on oil changes to allow for the damage you'll do to that engine if you don't change it often enough. I would always err on the side of caution. You know, I've got two vehicles, and I change mine around 3,000 miles. I use synthetic oil and change it 3,000 miles. I've just seen too many problems from those extended oil changes. Seals start to get hard because the additives have gone away. You start getting leaks. First off, you get an engine failure. Get engine failures and all that. I mean, I, I've got to say, in the last 10 years since they've really been pushing these extended oil changes, the number of engines we replace at what I consider low mileage is probably four times what it used to be. There's, we're changing engines out at 102, 105, 110,000 miles on a weekly basis now. There was a time before where you just, cars, you get tired of looking at the car before yep. you ever change an engine. They'd almost gotten engines where they never went bad. And now that's turned almost 180 degrees, and it's largely, I think, because of these extended oil changes. Okay. What about a fuel conditioner or additive for that? Not necessary. Just change your filter regular, use a good grade of fuel, and you'll be fine. Yep. I sure do. Thank you. All right, sir. Thanks for the call. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We got to take our first quick little break. We'll be right back with a whole lot more in the Automotive Hour. Ever plan to motor west? Whoa. What is up with all the charts and graphs, buddy? Oh, I'm using my system I've developed to keep up with the maintenance on my three cars. Is that an armillary sphere? Yes. Yes, it is. So... The oil gets changed every third full moon. Brake pads divide the years Becky and I have been married by our oldest son's age. Timing belt is leap year, except when it's on you, the time. You know feature. there's a better way, right? I just take my cars into Agco once a year for a general inspection. They give me an honest opinion on the maintenance and repairs I need. Sometimes it's just an oil change and they send me on my way. One time, they caught something that could have led to a huge repair. Saved me thousands. Wow, that sounds great. You know I'm always trying to save money any way I can. Let me get Agco's number online, and I'll give him a call. Is that dial-up? Dude, there's a better way to save money. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. You just joined us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. We certainly appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. And if you got a question or a comment on the show, you give us a call. It's 291-6901. And that's what Mr. Bex did. Mm-hmm. He used our email service. There you go. And he had a comment about our show. Of course, he loves the show and everything. And he had a few questions. And one of them was he's seeing a lot of the older cars, 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. being driven around more than he used to and was wondering if that's what the reason for that was. Yeah, I think that's a good trend. A lot of folks are seeing where an older car maybe is a better answer for them mm-hmm. than some of the newer products with all the gadgets and gizmos they don't want, they don't like, and they don't want to have to maintain. Well, they sure are a lot cheap to keep, I mean, maintain. Mm-hmm. Even on up into the early 90s are not bad cars. I like the later 90s ones. Yeah, I like better. Mid- mid-90s, They're all the way up to mid-2000s, really. They have the upgraded fuel system which right. is fuel injection which you don't have to mess with a carburetor anymore because right. that was a lot of maintenance you not, had to tune not on it. fuel tank which the ethanol is not going to eat up exactly 
I like them. Yeah, yeah, they're decent vehicles. And even the older cars, be it a 60 model muscle car or whatever, I think the point is if you drive it a lot, yes. you're probably not going to have much trouble. Where most people have problems with these cars, it's their baby, so they get it and they want it and they love it and all that, and they put it in the garage and they, and they don't drive it, it. And they don't drive it. Right. Well, that's the worst possible thing you could do with any car, but particularly on these older cars. Because they really weren't designed for the fuels and lubricants that we have today. Right. And if they sit up, you're going to have puts, It puts a lot of problems. problems with them. Yeah. So if you're driving it a lot, that's probably a good thing. So maybe that's why we're seeing them more on the road. Maybe the word's getting out there. If you drive it Need more. Need to drive them more. The second thing you do have to remember on the older cars, they were more maintenance intensive than newer cars. Yep. For instance, if you had points and plugs and a condenser in your car, those have to be replaced probably between 7,500 and 10,000 miles. Sure. Or the car would quit running, basically. And you would Not know- that big of a deal because most people could do it themselves and it was inexpensive to do. So it was a minor annoyance at worst. You had but to tune the, tune the carburetor up. You a had little. to tune it up a little bit, but that was just the way the car was designed. Right. Another thing is you had to adjust the brakes occasionally because sure. a lot of them didn't have self adjusting brakes. So. So long as you're familiar with the car, you're willing to do the maintenance and stuff on it, and you're willing to drive it. That's, either that's the biggest thing. Either you know how to work on it, or you can afford to have somebody to work on it for you. Yeah, and that's the that's that's a lot. A, to do that's with a it. big thing. If you have someone who can do it for you, well, that's even better. But they can be kind of problematic to find people to work on those cars sure, nowadays because most people are geared up, tooled up to work on the newer stuff. So I know like at Agco, we do work on a certain number of them, but we have to limit the number that are in the shop at sure. any given time just because it slows our production down so much and we can't get the cars that is our bread and butter done. And some of your shops don't have techs that were familiar with that type of well, vehicle Well, they have a younger, a younger technician. Younger crew, He yeah. probably never saw that. Yeah. Well, so he's it's like sort of like an old mechanic trying to work on, on new, new stuff. stuff. It's right. exactly it's the, the same thing in reverse. <laughs> I see we got all our lines right. lit up. Let's go. We got Mike online. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, guys. How y'all doing? Doing, doing great. Really appreciate your show. Thank uh, you. I get a little second opinion from you. I've got a. We're speaking about older cars. Mm-hmm. I've got a 1990 model Pontiac Bonneville LE. Okay. Naturally aspirated 3800. Recently, I had a check engine light come on and it kind of stumbled on takeoff from a red light or whatever. Sometimes it's rare for that car. It's been the best car I think I've mm-hmm. ever owned. Oh yeah, I like those cars. Yeah, I tried using my OBD1 scanner, but it only goes up to like 86, the one I have. So I did a flash code, you know, code 34. Okay. And I don't have a 90 model book. Yeah, I don't I'm remember. 34 code, if I'm not mistaken. I'm kind of stretching my memory back. I could be wrong. Well, according to the Sunbird book. Okay. In 91, as a map sensor code, okay. which the 3800 didn't have. I don't believe they did use a map sensor back then. I think they used a mass airflow sensor instead. When you look up on the air box where that tube goes to the throttle body, there's not a little sensor in there somewhere? Well, you got a mass airflow sensor. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. According, I looked it up online, Mm -hmm. and everybody said on that car, it's probably a mass airflow. It's got a 30 wire connector on it. Right. Uh, That would certainly give you a stumble. Yeah. And would also set a check engine light. And unfortunately, it, yeah, you, you can't get PID data. And the light went out for a little while, but it mm-hmm. came back on. And yeah, and see, so it may be reading off range, and that doesn't give you any PID data where you can mm-hmm. go in and read what it's seeing and right. stuff. But you would the only way that you're going to be able to check that is to have like a digital lab scope where you can go in and read the pattern on that meter because 
on the later model stuff, it gives you live data, and you can see the grams per second and all that. Right. You will scan to it, but you can't get that on that older model. You'd have to put a lab scope on it and see what the pattern looks like. And you'd have to understand what the pattern is supposed what to be supposed to as look to like. what it looks like. That's right. So it's pretty much going to need to go to a shop to diagnose that problem. Yeah. Well, and, square wave or... Yeah, it's got to match what it's supposed to, and it's got to do it under the right condition, how many grams per second. If not, the engine gets confused, doesn't know how much air it's got, so it starts to lean out and all that kind of stuff. One thing you might just try, Mike, and I'm not sure on this one, some of them, if you unplug the mass airflow, it'll just die and won't run. On some of them, it'll go to a default reading. I just don't remember on that one. You might try unplugging it and see if it temporarily starts running better because it'll go to a default if it'll run at all. If it just dies, obviously that won't work. You got to plug it back up. But if it starts to run better, then that's more evidence that it's probably reading wrong because the default is just closer to actual than what, the reading is getting. Mm-hmm. I haven't really got deep into it yet. I'm, I know vacuum will affect that a lot. If you get well, that's on your map sensor. Mass airflow doesn't care about vacuum. Mm-hmm. It strictly measures airflow. It's got a corona wire in there that's heated up, and the amount of air flowing past it cools it, and okay. it knows by how cool or how hot it is as how much air is going past it. So that's why when it gets dirty, it starts reading wrong. From behind the mass airflow, that, that might definitely read yes. Any yeah. kind of vacuum leak could cause that because it's got unmetered air going in. So the mass right. airflow just says, "Hey, it's not right for what I'm saying it is." Yeah. So it flags the code. Yeah, any type of vacuum leak could do that for sure. Well, we're gonna check into it further, and I appreciate the okay, uh, info and the second opinion. You all, you guys are always uh, spot on, and we enjoy that. Well, Thanks. good. Deal. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Bye bye. We've got CJ and Mike online. We have time for the break. Yeah, I got the big thumbs up there. We've right. got CJ online. Good morning, CJ. Uh, good morning. How are you fellas doing? Doing this great, sir. Doing I have a 2001 Dodge Durango with a 4.7 cubic inch engine. Mm-hmm. The problem I had, and I'm just curious on the reason, was the uh, on the right cylinder head. Mm-hmm. The carbon steel seal seat that it's aluminum head, and the carbon steel seat that the valve hits against on the head mm-hmm. fell out. Yeah, that was a problem they had on that engine, CJ. I don't know if it was a manufacturing problem, if they just didn't get them in there tight enough, or some about the metals they use. But I know I have seen that way a lot of times on that engine. Uh, the, the, head, the seat will just fall out of the head, and it'll go to missing and cutting up and all that. And some machine shops can bore it out, put a bigger seat in. I guess some of them replace the head. I guess there's different ways they go about fixing it. But that was not uncommon. I would say it was a design problem from Chrysler because I haven't seen that happen on a lot of other engines. There are some engines, and usually when that happens to an engine, it's because it happens on a regular basis to that particular engine type. And I've always felt it's because either the, the steel they used was improper for the aluminum to expand it too much and, and soften the hole, or it just wasn't fitted tight enough, or you know, who, who knows what was done wrong. I've also, all that being said, when I've seen them repaired, I've not seen it recur. So I think once they're fixed, you're pretty much good. But I have definitely seen that happen on that engine before. Because the condition has been paired. But I was always curious of why this mm-hmm. happened. I mm-hmm. said, my goodness, if, if it would have been a cast iron head, obviously that would never happen. Well, it can right. happen in a cast yeah. iron head, too. It just doesn't happen as often. You see, you've, when you got dissimilar metals, you have dissimilar expansion rate. So you have propensity towards a problem. If it's 
if it's put together properly, you won't have trouble. For instance, Chevrolet uses aluminum heads on all their V8 engines with a steel seat. I've never, never ever, one. ever had a problem with that. It's just a better design. Even Ford uses the same design, and they don't have any trouble with it. Chrysler uses that design on virtually all of their motors. That particular one has a problem. So it's just something in the design. Maybe the seat wasn't quite as thick as it might have been or whatever. And certainly it doesn't happen to all of them, but it happens to some of them. You know, so it's probably one of those things where it's kind of a borderline design. And if you get away, the yeah, some don't. it's just like people. You know, some of them live to be 100 years old. Some of them die at 30. <laughs> it's, it's just something happened to that person or something was wrong with him, you know, from the time he was born. Who knows? No real rhyme or reason to it. It's just a common ailment with that vehicle. Yes. Well, I appreciate it. All I right. hope my seals are, are put in right because I, I would like to live to be 100 if I can. There you there go. You go. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have a good day. All Thank right, you. CJ. Thank, Thank you, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We got to take one more quick little break. Mike, if you hold on, you'll be straight up after this break. So, Tina, are you interested in shopping next weekend? Oh, well, me and Harold leave for our European cruise on Friday. Another cruise? What? Are you all blowing the kids' inheritance? (laughs) No, we're just smart with our money. Like, our cars are paid off, and we're big on preventative maintenance. Harold takes them in once a year to Agco for a general inspection. They check everything out and perform maintenance on what we need to keep the cars running right. You'd be surprised on how fast you can save for a cruise without two car notes. (laughs) Wow, I never thought of that. I have time to do a little shopping this afternoon, though. I've got to get Harold a bathing suit. He keeps saying he wants one of those tiny Speedo suits because that's what everybody wears in Europe. And I cannot let that happen. Okay, now I have an image of Harold strutting around the pool in a Speedo. I think I'm going to book a general inspection from Agco to clear my mind. He wanted hot pink, too. (laughs) Tina, stop. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us as the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Go ahead and give us a call, 291-6901. And that's what Mike did. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for holding. Hey, you're welcome, uh, gentlemen. Good morning, and I uh, love the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Two questions, if I could. One of, uh, I got a 15-year-old F-150, and one of the issues is what causes like a, almost like a shudder when you, like roll up the window, electric windows all the way, and they stop, and then they're like you let go, and there's like a shutter almost from the engine. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Like, no, like really the sure. RPMs, the RPMs kind of um, go down. In other words, like yeah, man. The only I do, thing I can think of, Mike, is if the electrical system is somehow compromised, and there's let's just say we got a little bit of a weak alternator going on. It's strong enough to keep the battery up. It's strong enough to run the truck. But when you hit that power window, that draws a good bit of amperage. It may be sucking enough out of the system to where the voltage is dropping down, which is interfering with some of the control systems. That's the only thing that I can relate back to a power window. What I'd want to do is put a good, a known good voltmeter on the system and watch what system voltage does when you hit that switch. And push it up and hold it up and see if the system voltage starts to drop down, you know, it's normally going to be somewhere around 12 and a half to 13 volts, you know, with the car running. If it starts to drop down below 12, maybe 11, 10 and a half, somewhere in there, I would suspect probably the alternator is marginal. And where do you read that from, the alternator or the Anywhere battery? in the system, it wouldn't make any difference. And the system voltage is system voltage. I mean, you hook in a cigarette light if you want it. It's going to be the same voltage throughout the system. You're just trying to get a, a reference. Okay, good, good. 
And then the other thing, maybe related, but I just the other out of the blue, my power seat stopped working, and I know it has three motors, and none of them are working, so I don't think it's a motor. The power, the power seat, I believe, is on a circuit breaker. It, it's probably got a circuit breaker and maybe even a relay. Yeah. If they all stopped at the same time, more would, likely it either blew a relay or opened a circuit breaker, or some of them even have some of the old ones like had fuse links on them. Yeah. But the first and, thing, again, is go with a voltmeter to the motor and push the switch or go to the back of the switch, push the switch, and see if you got any power coming out of the switch. If you don't, then go up to the other side of the switch and see if you got power going into the switch. Now, if you got power going in and none coming out, then the switch is bad. If you got none going in or out, you got to just trace upstream and and find out where the circuit breaker or the uh, fuse is. Okay, would the would the regulators and stuff be under the seat, or am I looking in like a fuse box or a fuse panel? Or no, it's like gonna that? be in one of the fuse panels, and that one may be under the hood, just because most of the real big ones they put under the hood for whatever reason. You'd need an owner's manual or service data to find out exactly where the power seat stuff is going to be i just don't remember on, on a truck that old but it's mm-hmm. going to have a circuit breaker or a fuse one or the other and again to confirm it normally you can just pop that little switch outside the seat it just pulls straight out and put a voltmeter across terminal see if you got power going into the switch because if you got power going into the switch then it's not it's not yeah, you don't have to worry about, about, worry about all that if you right. do not have okay. power going in then you would now if you got power going in then check the other side of the switch if it's coming because it could just be the switch fail too Sometimes mm-hmm. when the switch opens, it's going to open the entire circuit. Right. Even though there's maybe okay. three switches, it may when one opens, it may be a serious right. thing going. On. It could it could open all of them. Sounds good. All right. Excellent. All right. Thanks as uh, always, guys. Appreciate you it. You bet. Where are you calling from, Mike? Uh, South Florida. Oh, okay. Great. Good deal. I, I, I what, thought I recognized your voice. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot. Thank you, man. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Two nine one sixty nine zero one is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I would love to have you. Now, just before the phone calls, we were talking about an email we had received about uh-huh. a gentleman who he is asking about the older cars. He's seen those. And seen a lot more of them on the road. The second part of his question was, would it be practical to get an older car and fix it up in lieu of buying a newer new car? One. If you didn't want to put up with all the, the stuff that the comes along with the new cars. And yeah. And I guess that's like every other question. It just a depends kind of a thing. The biggest problem with the older cars is a source of good parts, replacement parts. It's gotten harder and harder and harder as the manufacturers have discontinued parts on these older cars. The aftermarkets come in with stuff, but aftermarket being what they are, they're generally predicated on price Mm -hmm. because for whatever reason in the past, when people had older cars, they tended to price shop a lot more. They were just kind of patching something up, which is not necessarily the situation today. Today, people are buying older cars because they like that car. Right. So they're looking for a quality part, but these guys just hadn't seemed to catch up with that yet. They're still making the cheapest junk they can make to try to give the lowest price they can do. And what makes that even worse is people get on the Internet and find even cheapest of the cheap. A lot and, of that stuff is counterfeit. It's absolute junk. I mean, yeah, you just from don't overseas know what, somewhere. Well, you don't know what you're getting. Guy brought a AC Delco part in the other day, and I looked at it. I said, sir, I'm sorry, that's not it. He said, that is it. He shows me the box. We started looking. That is, I mean, I put a real Delco part next to it, and you clearly see the difference. Mm-hmm. It does say Delco on it, but it's a counterfeit part. Yep. It just came from some unregulated country somewhere, and they'll put any name they want on there. That, that's you, it. Name sales. So. And, well, how, how can that happen? Well, it happens all the time. Yep. I mean, you got the Federal Trade Commission who tries to regulate that along with 10 
billion other things. <laughs> so, you know, they can only do so much. A lot of that gets through. Yeah. So when you see this AC Delco or Motocraft part on the Internet for one-third the price that is available locally, guess what? Yeah, you better start yeah. thinking twice. Because there's just not that much markup in quality auto parts. Well, and, you know, I got a little story. I went the other day to get a set of points mm-hmm. for a 68 Ford. Mm-hmm. I walked in the auto parts store, and I told the guy I wanted a set of points for a 68 289. What do you say? What's that? He looked at me with that <laughs> deer in the headlights. Look. Yeah. What are those? Yeah. I said, they're ignition points. So he stopped what he was doing. He went and found an older gentleman. Yeah. And I says, yeah. Yeah, I know what those are. He says, well, you're going to have to find them for me because I, I don't know what I'm looking for. Uh-huh. So they started looking. They went through the catalog. Of course, when you go in an auto parts store, right. they want to know the make, the model, and it punch right. all that up in their computer. Right. This wasn't even in the computer hardly. Right. He finally dug it out. Went all the way down the back of a row and got the the, the rolling ladder out uh-huh. and went all the way to top shelf. Yeah, and pulled a set of points down. Knock, knock dust off the box. Yep. Well, <laughs> depend on how, depend on how much dust they had on that box, the better off you are. Exactly. Because that means they're, they're old, old. probably good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it, was, if it had a pet there with, with no dust on, I'd be a little worried. That's you know, it. You, you don't tell her what you're getting, but yeah, yeah, that's another thing about the older cars is you just have to kind of know what you got. And I'm talking about the real old stuff yeah. back in the 60s, 70s, 70s, 70s and up in there before electronic ignition. There was ignition parts and all that that had to be tended to. Very, very simple to do. Something the sure. average do-it-yourself could do with ease. Well, I remember as a kid, we used to change them all the time. Oh, yeah. I and, say kid, 15, 16 right. years old. And if you enjoy doing that, so much the better. Now, if you don't and you don't know about it, what's going to happen is the car is going to run real good for about 5,000 miles. It's going to start performance, going to start falling off, miles going to fall off. Right. You don't see that on modern cars because no. now you have a computer that sits there and it covers it up. And covers it up for you. But those older cars would do that and they needed they regular needed maintenance yeah. on them. It's just kind of part of it. And back then, it wasn't no big deal. That it was, was no just big part deal of the owning that was, the car. Yeah, if you owned a car, that's what you did. That's what you had to but do. But on the newer stuff, people have gotten used to just driving, 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 driving. Well, that's not going to be the case with an older car. So the two biggest things I can see is you have to be prepared for the maintenance. Right. And best be able to do it yourself. Number two is you have to try to do a lot, lot more work. You're not going to be able to just go down to a parts store, hop on the Internet, and find the first part you find. You have to do a lot, a lot of checking to get good quality parts or that poor old car will just fall apart. And when you find that quality part, Buy more than one. Yeah, not a bad idea. Keep some on hand Mm -hmm. because you know you're going to have to have them. Right. And parts like that are not going to go bad sitting on a shelf. Well, points and plugs and stuff like that will never go bad. You can keep them on the shelf as long as you want. That way, when you get ready to do it, you have the parts on hand to put it. Or worst case, just to say it quits running on Mm -hmm. you. You have the parts to fix it right then. Yeah, I always carry an extra set of points. When I used to drive 55 Chevrolets around, I always carry an extra set of points in the glove box. I know guys that carried whole distributors. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, there was nothing to reach in there and untuck the distributor. Yeah, came out Drop pretty a new easy. one in. Especially on the Ford because it was, oh, right, it was right there, there in, in the front. front. Yeah. yeah. Chevrolet was all the way in the back. Made it a little more difficult, but not bad. Yeah, not bad. I Experience stand can do it. I would pull the distributor to change the points sometimes. Because it's Just easier, easier to take easier it out. than getting back there fighting with it. I mean, yep. one, one bolt. Pop it right out. If you knew how to stab it back in, no big deal. Stab it in and reset the idle, and mm-hmm. timing fact, was right. A lot of uh, a lot of tune-up shops used to have a distributor machine. Yeah, I remember you seeing could those. Put it on that machine. You could spin it up, set the points and everything right there, and then just drop it in the car, and you're ready to go. That's it. Yep. I remember those. Mm-hmm. They are long gone by now. Well, now you got to buy them on eBay. Yeah. People get them for their man cave just to have something <laughs> cool, you know, to look at. But, yep. Time's gone by. Yep. Hey, one last quick little break. We'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. 
Hey, Mike, heading out for your run? <laughs> I just knocked out three miles myself. Yep, did my meditation this morning to de-stress, and now I'm going to get a little exercise. Tomorrow I need to take the car into the shop, though. That shaking problem's getting worse. Uh, you know, you should take care of your car like you take care of your body, and it would save you some money. What do you mean? Preventative maintenance is key. Me and Kathy bring our cars in once a year to Agco for a general inspection. They give them the once-over and perform the maintenance needed to keep us on the road. I haven't had any kind of major problem with my cars in forever. I guarantee they would have caught the cause of your shaking issue and fixed it before it became a problem. And probably saved me money, too. Yep. All right, I'm heading home this evening for steak and lobster. Then Kathy and I are going to test run our new hot tub. Surf and turf and a new hot tub? Yeah, and champagne. Saving money on your car allows you to enjoy the finer things in life, Mike, my boy. Schedule your general inspection today at Agco Automotive. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. This is the final segment of the Automotive Hour for today, and I'm your host, Louis Aldazan. We've got President of Agco Automotive, got our lead tech, Mr. Brian Terry, right here by my side. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions. Still got a few minutes. Go ahead and get your call in, get you an answer today. There you go. And, you know, we were talking about the older cars and mm -hmm. things, and it just it really depends on what you're going to do with that car mm -hmm. as to how you should take care of it. Because if you take it and you're driving it around town to car shows and things like mm -hmm. that, that's one thing. But right. if, if you're taking it out and putting it on the road. Like a daily driver. You really need to be prepared to fix it on the side of the road. Yeah. Because they were reliable to a point. That's right. But they're not as near as reliable as... The cars are today. Well, they didn't have the early warning systems. Now a check engine light pops on at the first sign of anything being a little off spec. So you've got some warning that something is fixing to occur. These cars had no early warning systems. No, when they quit, the, they quit. Yeah, the first notice you got was when the car broke down. That's it. And something had been possibly going wrong for a while, but you just didn't have any way to, to know. And people curse check engine lights. I know a lot because it's aggravating every time they come on. And that thing's always on. Yeah, but it's doing a lot of good for you. It sure. is, it is it's an early warning system. It is trying to protect you. It's giving you a warning. And so it's really, a, it's your friend. It's not your enemy. And it, that you just didn't have any of that back then. The technology wasn't there to do that kind of stuff. You know, I've driven old cars. You know, 1955 Chevrolet was my car yeah. of choice. Drove them for years. Always enjoyed them. But nowadays i'm more likely to drive a mid-2000 car and i realize that will probably not be an option at some point in the future but it seems to me that cars from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s got better 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 they did and by around 2004 or 5 they were building some of the best cars i think they have ever built yep and you could think of how many of those cars we still work on a lot well, like Dave Seeds has got a Suburban with almost 500,000 miles, yeah. a 98 model Suburban. I think he was in the other day, 438, I think. Yeah, yeah. A thousand miles on his body. A gajillion miles on it. Yeah. And, of course, he's done a lot of work on it along the way, but still nowhere close to what another vehicle would have cost. Exactly. You know, I'm driving, my daily driver is a 2005 Buick Park Avenue. Right. Now, I just got back from Gatlinburg in it. And when I tell you I left Gatlinburg Saturday morning, drove 640 miles nonstop, back to new orleans yep i mean i stopped once for gas and once to eat but other than that that car never missed a lick never hiccup never did anything and of course it's the same way up there it was even further because we went through the mountains and did a little took the long took the sightseer long way well around. that's right that's right I, I wasn't in a hurry going up and coming back i was a little ready bit to get, yeah i was ready to get home <laughs> well you know when, when you head down from gatlinburg once you get to say birmingham alabama you still got about 400 or so miles but yeah. there's not a whole lot that i want to see because right. i've seen all that so many times so 
Next thing you know, you're in Meridian, Mississippi. Well, it's 275 miles from New Orleans. I'm not uh, going to yeah, stop now. You're almost home. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to pay for a hotel road when I'm that close. So you might get a little tired towards the end, but nothing for me to drive long right. distance. I'm, I'm kind of a, a road kind of guy. I remember one time we got off of a cruise in Miami, Florida, and I drove from Miami, Florida to New Orleans. I think it was 901 miles. Yeah. <laughs> Stopped twice for gas, I think, maybe twice to eat. And other than that, we drove straight on Rolled through. Rolled through, yeah. Yeah. But the point is, just because you've got an older car doesn't mean it can't be reliable. My car has been meticulously maintained, so I feel perfectly comfortable getting in it, driving to Miami, driving to New York, driving wherever I might want to go. Sure. And I know there's going to probably come a point where I won't be able to get parts for it anymore, and I will just have to go to something newer. Kind well, of I mean, you're, dreading seeing, that you're day, seeing some of that already. Yeah. Not, not a lot, but some of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I got a dent in the back door and brought it over to uh, LaPorte's Body Shop. And, of course, I'm thinking we was going to put a door skin on it. Right. And, and Doug calls me and says, man, I can't get a skin for that door. I said, well, darn, can you get a complete door? I can't get a complete available. door. <laughs> so now what? Well, and we were lucky. We found a used door uh-huh. that happened to be roughly the same color, which meant the big molding on the side matched. So I'm not sure you could have got that molding either. Exactly. So we're able to just paint the door hanging on there and get the car saved but again there'll come a point when those old cars will start getting crushed and all they're crushing them every day yeah that they're going away so when that happens then you're just gonna be faced with well what's now now what the the lessons of the evils (laughs) (laughs) and i find that if i had to make a choice today i'd have to buy one of the toyota products oh yeah possibly some of the honda stuff is pretty decent but depending on what you're after yeah even that they're just getting a lot more they have to compete with the guys who are throwing all these gadgets and gizmos on them so they're putting a lot more stuff on them so i think that as those cars start to age you're gonna see more problems than you ever saw with the old ones oh yeah talking to a lady the other day and she's got a 98 camry and uh, just a huge number of miles on it. She's talking about, well, I'm thinking I might want to have to get something new. I'm going to get another one just like it. I said, well, nah, not I just hate like to tell you, you're not going to get one just like <laughs> it. You'll never get another car like that. Because when the automakers all started going bankrupt in 2007, 2008, up in that area, one of the things that they attributed it to was, hey, people are keeping cars too long. They're not buying enough new cars. Yep. Now, my thought would be, okay, let's look at a new model. People not buying new cars because they don't like what you're building. Right. So maybe we need to change the new building. ones like the old ones. And maybe we need to say, hey, if people are going to keep cars longer, we need to increase service, increase parts, and all that. We can make up the difference there. Maybe car sales aren't the only model we could look at. Uh-huh. But for whatever reasons, they didn't that's say what, that. They said, what we're going to do, we're going to obsolete parts. So they got to change them. We're going to try to get some legislation passed that will get rid of them. We're going to make it as difficult as possible for people to keep, keep these them. old cars. Yep. And I don't know. I, you know, you can lead people pretty easy, but it's really hard to push them. Mm-hmm. People don't like being pushed. <laughs> I know exactly. I don't. I just think that it could have been handled a whole lot better than what it was. And, of course, now you do have a younger generation of drivers coming online who are raised with technology. They're they like not it. scared of technology. They like technology. They stood in line two days to buy the new iPhone when it yeah, came out. Yeah, exactly. And the manufacturers look at that and say, hey, they want technology. We'll give them technology. Watch this. Mm-hmm. And what happens as you get older, you start to learn that, hey, all these bells and whistles are really cool, but I know that this is going to break one day. And somebody's got to pay for it. And, and I that know somebody's going to be me. Right. That, well, and see, that's just kind of part of the older generation, the self-responsibility. Yeah, when this breaks, I'm going to have to pay for it, so I'm not going to indulge in this type of thing. Right. Whereas, and I'm not trying to stereotype anybody, but a lot of younger people don't have quite that type of an upbringing. 
uh, you know, they, they well, why this way? Shouldn't bro? I don't. It ain't my fault. <laughs> I shouldn't have to pay for this. But the thing is, the more gadgets and gizmos you get, you got to remember if you like it. God that's, bless oh, yeah. you. If you can afford it, great. Go for it. That's it. Go for it. If you, if it makes you happy, then that's wonderful. But just know that you're not walking out of the shop with a $60 repair bill. You're walking out of the shop with a $3,500 repair bill when this stuff starts to malfunction. It's just like those, those cars that park themselves. Oh, yeah. That was something they taught us in school, how to parallel park. Oh, yeah. You had to know how to parallel park. Right. Well, now we've got a car that does it for us. And it's kind of cool. I mean, yeah, you can sit there, take your hand off the wheel, push the button, and it'll calculate the angles, and it'll put it in there. And what happens when it backs over a curb or <laughs> well, backs over somebody? Well, what happens or... <laughs> is that you drive through some high water, and some of that water gets in that electronic rack and pinion, and instead of a $600 repair bill like you have with the old hydraulic rack and pinion, now you got a, a $3,000 repair bill with this electronic rack and pinion. Yep. And the car won't go because it's electronic, and it quits working, so now you can't, can't steer, steer the car. It. Yep. And... That kind of stuff, I notice all this new lane change technology and all that, it's wonderful. It's got all these sensors and right. uh, different stuff in there. But when the warning light pops on and there's nobody next to you, all of a sudden now it's not functioning. It may set a check engine light, may set all kind of other stuff. You're not going to have an option except you're going to have to fix all this. That's right, because it's all on the same network, and those computers are talking to each other. And when it doesn't see that computer on the network... Mm-hmm. It may shut the whole network down. Well, and I think it's wonderful that a car can sense another car ahead of it and stop the car. That, oh, yeah. That's good. Safety. It just doesn't really happen that often. I've been driving for 50-plus years, and I've never run in the back of anybody. <laughs> I, I just kind of watch what I'm doing. And like I said, it, it's just a cost involved. If right. you like it, great. But, you know, just be aware there's going to be a big, big cost involved. Hey, I see we're just about totally out of time. we got to go and start winding on up. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Go to your favorite broadcast or rebroadcast service, whichever that might be, and find a written review and fill it out for us. That's right. If you can't find a written review there, just go to Google and type in our shop name, Agco Automotive, put the review there. We'll appreciate it all the same. A preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend.